Now, as we come to our text, we cannot forget Peter's audience. He is writing to churches. Churches spread across what's known as Asia Minor. And they are suffering. They are sojourners. They're travelers. They're, they're exiles. They're, they're not in the home that's been made for them. Yet they are chosen by God. They are elect exiles. Peter describes them as a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And after equipping this church to suffer, after preparing them to, to not be surprised when the fiery trials come, Peter turns unexpectedly, seemingly, to elders, to the pastors of these churches. Now, just a couple quick notes on, on where we begin here. He turns to elders. Elders are is just another word for, for pastor, for shepherd. We see this throughout the New Testament. And it's assumed, implied here, that all of these churches that Peter's writing to, he's writing to a group of churches, not just one church, they have elders. So this is a, a structure given by God for the functioning of the church. Now, before we walk through this text, we have to answer this question of, of why. Why does Peter turn to address the elders? Now, we're given a clue just a few verses before. Look at, look at verse 17 of chapter 4. It says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. This is a, a curious expression. We've seen Peter mention this judgment already earlier in chapter 4. Now in, ver- in verse 5 we saw in chapter 4 that he, that he speaks of how unbelievers, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But it's not just the unbelievers that are going to face this judgment. He uses this as his motivation to be self-controlled and to be sober-minded, to love one another and show hospitality. The end of all things is at hand. It's 100 seconds to midnight. Judgment is just around the corner. And here he says it's going to begin. Where is this judgment going to begin? At the household of God. Where in the world does Peter get this idea? It actually seems clear that Peter had been spending time in the book of Ezekiel, in the Old Testament. Particularly one chapter in Ezekiel 9, where this same phrase is stated. In verse 6, of chapter 9, Ezekiel has been, has been prophesying about judgment that is going to come because of wickedness and because of sin. And in chapter 9, verse 6, there's this phrase that God tells the angel that's going to bring that judgment. He says, begin at my sanctuary. Begin with the household of God. But then listen to the very next phrase that Ezekiel writes. He says this. So God says, begin at my sanctuary. And then Ezekiel writes, so they began with the elders who were before the house. So when Peter writes to the first century church that judgment begins the household of God, he recognizes the place where this begins. begins with the elders. And he knows the pain of the fire and the inescapability of judgment. He knows it's coming in the household of God and on the elders first. So Peter, after talking about suffering, preparing the church for suffering, now turns to address the elders. He wants to tell them of their task, to warn them of its dangers and give them hope in the midst of the judgment that begins the household of God. And so in verse 1, we read, so, or therefore, it's it's attached to what's before, therefore I exhort the elders among you. Now what we read here and going forward is, is just that. It's directly connected to what has come before. Peter wants these elders to know how they must conduct themselves 
in the face of this suffering and judgment. Now, before we go any further, I want to address one question you may have. Why are we all listening to the sermon? Like, isn't this just for me and Larry as elders at Grace Church? In other words, like, it's, it's very clear that this exhortation is not for the whole church, but for the elders. So why do we all need to hear it? There are several reasons I could offer, but I'm just going to offer, offer two briefly. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in a third just for free. <laughs> First, we need to hear it because God saw fit for us to hear it. Uh, think about this letter. This would have been a letter that was sent to churches to be read in the context of churches. And it was the whole letter that was read to these churches. They passed around. And today we receive God's word just as it was given then. And it's to churches. And so God saw fit for it to be read. And as we talked already about 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is profitable. All includes 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Second reason, we need to hear it so we know God's view of what church leadership and pastoral ministry should look like. If we don't let God form these ideas, something else will form these ideas. And what will rush in to fill that void is, is the culture that surrounds us, is the world. And so we might end up having churches that look a whole lot more like businesses than they look like the house of God. If we don't let God's word inform what our view of church leadership and pastoral ministry should look like. So we all need to hear that. A third one is for, uh, especially you uh, younger people who are here, younger men that are here, you may be pastors one day, you may be elders one day, and hearing this will prepare you for that day. And Lord willing, there are several of you here that one day will serve as elders at, at Grace Church or at another church. So Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you. Now, it's interesting to note how Peter then identifies himself. Look again at verse 1. I exhort the elders among you. First, he says, as a fellow elder. As a fellow elder. While Peter could have made some claim to authority as an apostle, instead he chooses to identify himself with those he is exhorting. So he's exhorting the elders as a fellow elder. I mean, think, this is, this is Peter. This is like Jesus said he's going to build his church with, with Peter. Peter walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He was commissioned by Jesus after the resurrection. He was there at Pentecost. And he preached at Pentecost. Like all these things he could have said. Instead, he says, as a fellow elder. He writes as one joined with them in this office, standing with them in the coming judgment on the house of God and in suffering. He's not separate from them. He's not above them, but with them. He is a fellow elder. And then next he writes that he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now to say that he's a witness, some take to mean that he's just talking about seeing Christ's sufferings. I saw what Jesus went through, but it's, it's more than that. Peter means that his words and life bear witness to what Christ went through. His life and his words, they're a testimony. They testify to the reality of the way of Christ. This ironic path that begins with suffering but leads to glory. This is what Peter saw in Jesus. This is what Peter lived out himself. So this is how Peter identifies himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And then he says, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. By this he speaks of this glory that's going to come, this, this future glory, a coming reward that will be given when Christ returns. So he exhorts the elders as a fellow elder, 
to endure in their ministry because this greater glory is coming. And this is really the irony of pastoral ministry. John Calvin, he writes it this way. He says, it's the character of faith to have trust in hidden blessings. It's the character of faith to have trust in hidden blessings. Faith hopes in what it cannot see. This epitomizes not just the Christian life, but the life of a pastor. We hope in that which we cannot see. From here, Peter moves to the substance of his exhortation. And we're going to walk through the rest of our text under three headings. The first heading is going to be this, the task of pastoral ministry. Number one, the task of pastoral ministry. Peter writes in verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The task of pastoral ministry, stated explicitly right there, is to shepherd the flock of God. Now notice first, this task is not about shepherding my flock, or Larry's flock, or our flock. You see what he says there? He says, shepherd the flock of God. God's flock. The church is a people who have been gathered together by God. The church is God's. It doesn't belong to us, not to pastors or to the congregation. It belongs to God. And as pastors, we stand as stewards of that which is God's, as servants of God. And we have been given the privilege and responsibility to then shepherd God's flock. But what does this mean? What does it mean to shepherd God's flock? Well, there are really two components to the shepherding that that Peter highlights. The first has to do with with care and provision. It is to to provide for the sheep. To to be a shepherd of the flock is to, to provide for the sheep. To provide the sheep with food for health and well-being. Now, how do we do that? I love Martin Luther's simple description of the task derived from Scripture. He comments, To tend them is nothing else than to preach the gospel. Nothing else than to preach the gospel by which souls are nourished, made fat and fruitful. And he's using fat in the best way possible. Made fat and fruitful, since the sheep thrive upon the gospel and the word of God. So to shepherd the flock is to preach the gospel. We shepherd the flock of God by feeding them with the gospel of God, the only hope for salvation. This is the task that Jesus himself gave to Peter after the resurrection. This very Peter who's writing this letter, the one who denied Jesus three times, saying he didn't know him, has this remarkable interaction with Jesus on the banks of the Sea of Tiberias. We read about it in John 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. So Peter denied him three times. Jesus says, feed his lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, the one who denied him three times, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus commissions Peter, feed my sheep. Peter commissions elders, exhorts elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, feed them. 
The task of pastoral ministry is to feed the flock of God, the Word of God, proclaiming the Gospel of God, the only message for salvation. But this is not the only component of shepherding God's flock. Yes, we're exhorted to provide for the sheep. Shepherds also must protect the sheep. Pastors must actively protect the flock of God from that which seeks to destroy it. They are to lead it and to guard it. We see this in the next phrase. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now to exercise oversight is to, to oversee the church, to lead the church, to, to govern and guard the church. It is to take notice of what is taking place in the congregation in order to, to guard it. And as your pastors, Larry and I are tasked with guarding Grace Church against the wolves that seek to lead sheep astray which seek to introduce falsehood and error that compromise the truth of the gospel. So we have been given this twofold task to feed and provide for, to lead and protect the flock of God. This is to shepherd it. But that's not all Peter writes here in this verse. There's one little clause that we need to see. I skipped over it. It says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That is among you. God's shepherds are to care for the sheep that are among them. We don't shepherd the sheep across town. We don't shepherd the sheep across the country or around the world. But those that have been entrusted to our care. Now, while it's not the only reason we have church membership, it's certainly one of them. Church membership helps to identify who these shepherds are responsible to care for. Pastors don't care for some ambiguous flock of sheep. They're to care for those that are among them. And it's an important thing to highlight because in our day and age of, of digital communication and mass followings on social media, uh, it's important to remember that the, the elder's call is to shepherd the flock that is among them. One of my favorite 17th century pastors, a man by the name of George Swinnick, was known to pray specifically for a small congregation. He, he wanted to have a small congregation. Well, I mean, he said a large congregation would be great, it would be fine, it would have some blessings. Swinnick carried this burden of shepherding God's flock. He knew that with too many people, he would not be able to deal with everyone in private concerning their everlasting peace. Those were his words. He wanted to know his people so that he could minister to them in their particular circumstances. And the same is true for Larry and me. We take very seriously the task that God has given us to shepherd this flock, to care for your souls, to guard you from the devil, from deceit, and from your sin. There's nothing more important in our work than these tasks. So that's what we give ourselves to. That's what Peter has exhorted us to do, and that's what we seek to faithfully do. Now, after presenting some of the tasks of pastoral ministry... Peter turns next to this, this series of contrasts that describe our second main heading, which I'm going to call the dangers of pastoral ministry. Number two, the dangers of pastoral ministry. Peter makes these three contrasting statements, each with a, a negative and a positive, to highlight three dangers in pastoral ministry. Now the first danger we see right there in verse two is compulsion. Shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Now, to do something under compulsion is to do something because you feel like you have to. If you manage your home's finances, 
Perhaps filing your taxes is something you do under compulsion. Or maybe for some of the kids here, maybe, maybe some adults too, making your bed every day is something you do under compulsion. I was going to say brushing your teeth, but I, don't, I hope not. But maybe it's just something you do under compulsion. You have to do it. You do it out of duty, obligation. But the problem with doing something under compulsion is work done under compulsion is rarely work done well. If we only do what we have to do, we can be tempted to do it poorly. We can be tempted to cut corners, to to do it joylessly as we grumble and complain. But Peter says the work of pastoral ministry should not be done this way, not under compulsion. Instead, it should be done willingly. Willingly. To do something willingly, on the contrary, is to do it with joy and with gratefulness. It is to recognize the privilege of the task that's given. Now, I have never eaten a bowl of ice cream under compulsion. It's always willingly, joyfully. I do it voluntarily, and I do it well, because I make sure that I leave no bit of brownie or cookie dough or creamy, chocolatey goodness unattended. Always, I eat it willingly. Now, for the pastor, the same should be true of his work. Peter knows that in the face of suffering and in the face of judgment and and trials, the church needs elders who are going to stand firm and work willingly. Because if they're there under compulsion, when, when the heat turns up, they're getting out of the kitchen. Think about our military. Who would you rather have fight for you? A soldier who was drafted involuntary, involuntarily into service or one who is there voluntarily? I know for myself, I'd much rather have the latter. The same should be true of your pastors. Larry and I do not serve as elders at Grace Church because nothing else worked out for us. Like this is all we had. We had to settle here. No, that's not why we're here. We are here willingly because God has called us here. It's a joy to be here. And our desire and hope and prayer and our request that you would pray for us as well is that all that we do would be done willingly as God would have us, not under compulsion. Now, the second danger Peter highlights is, is greed. He goes on in verse 2 to shepherd the flock of God, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now to do something for shameful gain is to do it out of greed. And Peter recognizes that there is danger for some pastors to do what they do for the sake of money, for the sake of earthly gain. And Scripture abhors this idea. At every point, it speaks against those who would use, use the ministry of the gospel for worldly advancement. There are some false teachers today who drive the nicest cars, who eat at the finest restaurants, who wear the best clothes, and they say that their wealth is just simply a sign of God's blessing and anointing on them. It's God's favor. But their so-called ministry exists for the purpose of shameful gain. They're in it for the sake of money. I just uh, was, uh, heard a story last night, yesterday, about a, uh, someone who came, went to this healing crusade, and they came and the, brought the, um, the father brought the son up who had cerebral palsy, and the healer began to turn away, wanted nothing to do with it. The father chased her down, and, uh, and there's a lot of people around, so she felt obligated, and uh, she 
After anointing the boy with oil, she then asked the father, how are you doing financially? And how much money do you have to give? Because the more you give, the more God is going to bless you, and the more likely it is that he is going to heal your son. And this, these are things that happen in the name of Christianity, in the name of, of gospel ministry. Last month at a conference that I was at, I uh, got to spend time with a nephew of one of, these, one of the most famous um, uh, of these prosperity preachers. And uh, we've interacted a lot over the last month, and it's remarkable to, to hear his stories of the abuses of gospel ministry. It's heartbreaking. Um, and the world that he has been redeemed out of uh, is not a world that reflects biblical Christianity or biblical eldership in any way whatsoever. This is not to, to function for shameful gain is not biblical Christianity. It's not taking up our cross and following Jesus. So Peter calls pastors to do their work eagerly, to do it eagerly. To do our work eagerly relates to the exhortation to do it willingly. We are to, to lean into our work, to spend ourselves on this work, doing it with all our energy, doing it sacrificially, not because of what we get, but because this is what God has called us to do. And then in verse 3, Peter mentions a third danger in pastoral ministry, pride. He writes that elders are to shepherd the flock of God, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter warns against those who would lead the church in a way that goes to their head, in a way that grasps at position and prestige. To domineer is to, to lord over, to boss others around. Ultimately, it's to view oneself as better than or over others. And at its root is pride. At its root is a self-reliance that begins to think that I'm indispensable to this church. I'm indispensable to the purposes of God. Now, if I think that my way and my actions, uh, if I think that way, my actions are going to follow. I will view myself as the one you need, the one that God needs. And as a pastor, the result is that I'm going to be domineering and arrogant in my leadership. But this is not biblical pastoral ministry. Rather than grasping at position and prestige, what does Peter say? Peter says, be an example to the flock. Pastors must walk in such a way that they realize that without the life of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, they are nothing and can do nothing for the flock of God. Faithful pastors are to shepherd the flock of God by being examples of the way of Jesus. They are to follow Him and use their authority and position as elders and overseers in the church, not as a path to power and prosperity, but as an opportunity to serve. And here again we see this, this irony of pastoral ministry. When the world sees leadership, it often thinks of status and privilege. But the Christian ministry is not about attaining some status. It's not about being a local celebrity. It's not about building a little kingdom that you can be king over. It's about being a servant. A servant. We lead in order to serve. As elders, we live in order to die to ourselves. Larry and I don't function at Grace Church on, on some other level of holiness. We don't have some other rules that we get to live by. We are all called to the same obedience. 
We are all called to walk in the fear of the Lord, to subject ourselves to His rule and reign, to His Word. And this is seen in a unique way each, each and every week as we preach God's Word. This is another reason why we're committed to expository preaching that I was talking about earlier and why we're preaching this text this morning. When I preach, it's not as if, you know, I've got all this figured out, so I can get up here and share something. Like, from my fountain of knowledge. Let me dispense to you all that I have. No. No, when I preach or when Larry preaches, we come as hearers. We come as hearers. We come to hear what God calls us to believe about Him. What He requires of us. We are men. And like the rest of Grace Church, we are men under the Word of God. At different points in church history, there's been a practice where you would have someone come up and walk the Bible up to the lectern and put it on the lectern. And then after that, the preacher would come up to God's Word. And this was to show that this man was under the authority of God's Word. He didn't come up there on his own with all his own wisdom. He came up here to be a steward of God's Word. And and our desire and our hope and what we seek to do week after week is to do the same. We aim to live lives that are faithful to this call of God, where we walk faithfully before Him and before you to encourage you to see in Jesus is the only path to true life and joy. Now Peter knows the church is going to suffer and be judged. And so he prepares its leaders by warning them of these three dangers of compulsion and greed and pride so that they might shepherd God's flock well. Now after after speaking of the task and the dangers of pastoral ministry, Peter next turns to its hope. The hope of pastoral ministry. That's our third heading. The hope of pastoral ministry. We're going to see this in verse 4. Now have you ever given much thought to the plight of pastors? I know I hadn't done too much until I became one. Failure is constantly around us, incessantly around us, constantly confronting us. Now first, there's our own personal failure. And this is the, by far the most significant one. For, for instance, this week as I prepared to preach, actually it's every week that I prepare to preach, I'm confronted by my own sin. As I'm preparing to preach, I'm confronted by my own sin. The temptation to be working under compulsion or to want to be recognized for my labors. Even, even as I was preparing this morning, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I should share that moment of private faithfulness just to illustrate this point. And then I realized, wait, like the reason I want to share that is so that others will think, oh, what a faithful and godly pastor. Praise God for you, Daddy. What an example. No, in every task that I take on as a pastor, I bring with me a sinful heart whose aim is to undermine the work of the gospel. So I bring my failure. In everything that I do as a pastor, I bring my sin, my failure. Second, I'm not going to let you off the hook. There's your failure. Yes, your failure. The sheep that I'm called to shepherd, they're sinners too. Now the hardest tasks in pastoral ministry often result in what seems like the least amount of fruit or no fruit at all. If I meet with you over the course of a couple of weeks to work through a challenge in your life, when we part, your sin is actively seeking to undermine all that we just talked about, all that we did. Pastoral work is not like Uh, the summers in high school when I would lay brick and we would go out in the morning and we would lay the brick and then we'd come back the next day and we would build on top of the brick. It was great. You would see your work done and then you would just add to that each and every day. No, it's not like that. It's more like the work of my wife, Christine. 
how she must feel. She can spend all day doing chores, and then the next day she comes home and sees that it seems like all her work has been undone. The same can be true in pastoral ministry. And it's not just because of my sin. It's not just because of your sin. Third, there is Satan. Next week we'll read this verse together as Larry preaches in, in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. I think next week. week after. The week after, or a couple weeks after, because we have a guest preacher. So soon. Soon and very soon. But we'll read it right now, just to whet your appetite. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan aims to thwart our every effort to honor and obey God. And sometimes he seemingly prevails in his opposition to God. So Peter is writing to the church and its elders of this this suffering, of this judgment, of this opposition, and it can be really discouraging. All of this can be cause for fear, for giving up. Uh, A popular phrase these days in ministry circles is burnout, pastoral burnout. And as a younger pastor, I've seen far too many of my peers cite that for reasons in leaving ministry. But here, Peter provides the hope of pastoral ministry. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, I just want to be clear, Peter's point here is not that what pastors will receive is better than what the other Christians will receive. It's like, here's the little section of heaven where all the pastors hang out, and this is the best part. And then here's where everybody else hangs out. Not biblical, not true. What he is saying is that for the faithful labor of elders, a glorious inheritance awaits. The hope of pastoral ministry is fixed on the future. Just like the hope of the Christian life is fixed on this coming glory. It's this inheritance that we look ahead to. And whatever you're going through, this is what we look ahead to. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's the hope of the future that informs the actions of the present in pastoral ministry. This is where we have our eyes. Larry and I have our eyes. Faithful pastors should have their eyes as they labor day in and day out, week after week. And here again we see this irony, this path of willing and eager sacrifice, of servant leadership, of dying to yourself for the sake of others. This is the path to unimaginable joy. That's ironic. The pastor's hope in the midst of discouragement, in the face of suffering, is the coming of Christ. It's not in a growing church. It's not in having a beautiful building. It's not in retiring. It's not being numbered among the fastest growing churches in America. It's not in having a ministry platform and having notoriety throughout the evangelical world. That is not the pastor's hope in the midst of discouragement or any other time. The pastor's hope is is and always is on the coming day when the chief shepherd appears. Now, nowhere else in all of Scripture do we come across this word that's translated chief shepherd. Jesus is described as the arch shepherd. He is the one who is responsible for all the sheep. Praise be to God. (laughs) Elders and church members, all the sheep. Jesus is the one that's responsible for him. He is the chief shepherd. It is his church. It's God's flock. Jesus himself is really the pastor of Grace Church. 
As pastors, we serve under Him and in His name. And what an incredible privilege and hope is found here. Because God does not depend on me and Larry to lead this church, to build this church. Because Jesus Himself says, Matthew 16, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we work in His name. And whether or not the world ever views us as a success is irrelevant. It matters less than nothing. Because we have our eyes set on a future day, a truer reality, an infinitely more significant time, the coming of Christ and the reward that He will bring. The call of pastoral ministry, of shepherding God's flock, isn't determined by success or status. It is determined by faithfulness. It's determined by a resolved determination to please God and glorify Him and no one else. Now, in the late 16th century, there was a a pastor of a little English village, Dry Drayton, named Richard Grenham. Richard Grenham served just outside Cambridge in this little town, and he served his church faithfully for over 20 years. He was a man of really remarkable gifting, and he had tremendous faith and energy. Just listen to how how he's described. He would wake up every day at 4 a.m., He would preach a sermon at daybreak, sunrise, four days a week he would do that, to get to people before they went out into the fields. Four times a week he was doing that. His other weekday was not spent catching up on sleep. Rather, he would go and teach and train children during that morning. So he was preaching those four times. He was catechizing kids that other day. And then he would preach twice on Sundays. Every Sunday, preach twice. He spent his mornings, this is after getting up at 4 a.m. and after preaching, studying, and he would spend his afternoons visiting the sick and walking the fields to care for and counsel his neighbors. And he was known as a, a tremendous counselor. His biographer described his preaching as passionate. He wasn't just going through the motions. He was into what he was doing. Listen to how he describes Describes Grenham. He says, He was so earnest and took such extraordinary pains that his shirt would usually be as wet with sweating as if it had been drenched with water. So he, he poured himself into laboring, willingly, eagerly, as an example to the flock. Now, after serving his church in Dry Drayton in this manner for 20 years, 20 years, Grenham told the man who was coming after him, his successor, he told him this. He said, I perceive no good wrought by my ministry on any but one family. 20 years, all that work, all that labor, he looks back and he says, you know what? I, I can see it made a difference in one family. There was actually a saying, a little rhyme among, among pastors because they knew of his faithfulness uh, that they would say, Grenham had pastures green, but flocks full lean. For all of Grenham's gifting and labor and faithfulness, his ministry seemingly bore no fruit. Now there are some today that would look at Richard Grenham, there were some then that would look at Richard Grenham and say, what a failure. What a waste. He seemed gifted, he seemed to have all kinds of energy. Can't we like more strategically put him somewhere else where he's really going to make a difference? Well, Grenham didn't know this, but after he died, 
his influence went far and wide, particularly among pastors in England. And so the late 15th century, if you, if you know uh, church history, Martin Luther came around, Reformation begins 1517, and then you've got guys like Martin Butzer and John Calvin who, who extend, Ulrich Zwingli, who extend the Reformation through the 16th century, through the 1500s. Towards the tail end, you have a guy, William Perkins, you have Richard Grenham, and these guys are known as the fathers of the Puritans. And so names like John Owen, I quoted George Swinnick earlier, John Flavel, uh, John Bunyan, all these guys, they're known as Puritans. And they were, they were shaped and formed by the ministry of men like Richard Grenham. And these men still minister to people today. And so, we, I mean, you step back though and you realize, but Grenham wasn't even in it for that. He wasn't in it for a legacy. Do you know what he was in it for? He was in it for what verse 4 says. The appearing of the chief shepherd when he will receive the unfading crown of glory. Because that's the only thing that can give motivation for 20 years of, of fruitless, seemingly fruitless ministry. And God sees fit to reward and to bless obedience. Reward and bless faithfulness. And brothers and sisters, this is the irony of pastoral ministry. That seemingly futile labors in obscurity lead to glory in eternity. Amen. And the same is true for you. As pastors, this is true for us, but the same is true for you. You may feel like no one is ever going to see or no one is ever going to know what you are doing or what you are going through, but God is faithful. He is the faithful creator. So entrust your soul to Him. And know that there is a day coming when the chief shepherd will appear. And that, that inheritance, that imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance, which has been kept in heaven for you, is going to be revealed. And you will know it. So, brothers and sisters, we look to Jesus. As pastors, we look to Jesus. As a congregation, as sheep, all of us, we look to Jesus because He is our hope. And in Him we trust. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank You for Your Word, which speaks of uh, the glories of what You have done for us in Jesus Christ. Thank You that You sent Your Son, who became man, the God-man, who lived the life that we couldn't live in perfect righteousness. And He died our death. He died the death that we deserve to die. And He rose from the dead on the third day and He ascended on high. And now in Him, by the Spirit, we can have life in His name. And Lord, I pray for Larry and I that we would faithfully labor, we would faithfully shepherd Your flock, Grace Church, that we may all one day, behold your glory when the chief shepherd appears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.